With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and this is going to be the second episode in our series about people who work with the homeless or the housing insecure. It's all about folks who... Uh, you know, devote their professional careers to working with society's neediest and most vulnerable. Last week, uh, we met Mark, who was a tenants' rights lawyer, essentially, working with people who faced potential eviction. Those are people who are not homeless. They are they're people who are trying to stay in their homes. Today, in, in this episode, we're actually going into the world of homelessness services. In New York City, there is a really interesting program. And as far as I know, there aren't really a lot like it in the country. Uh, I kind of talk with this week's guest about that a little bit, but it's it's pretty unique. And essentially, the city contracts with nonprofits who send out teams of social workers and, and professionals to go out and do outreach and find people who are homeless on the streets and tell them about the services the city might offer them, whether that's you know, helping them get into a shelter or what's called a safe haven, which you'll kind of learn more about this episode, or eventually get them into permanent housing and the way they can help them do that financially. These outreach workers are really the, the people on the front lines of dealing with homelessness in New York. So who are we talking to today? Who are you going to meet? I sat down with Stephanie Somar. She is a clinical supervisor at the Center for Urban Community Services. And essentially, she helps lead a team that canvasses all of Upper Manhattan, from the top of Central Park all the way to the very end of the island, looking for the homeless and trying to make contact and trying to eventually then get them into housing. And there are going to be points during this episode where things get a tiny bit technical, and I hope you stay with it. And I hope you pay attention because what I kind of gleaned from the discussion with Stephanie is just how complicated the system is and how badly people probably need help to navigate it, to find their way to housing. By the end of our chat, I just found the idea of being a person in really deep need, being homeless, and not having someone to kind of hold your hand through the bureaucracy and find your way to a permanent situation. I, I just found that unimaginable. Like how you would navigate this was just beyond me. I found the conversation really illuminating in that respect that just kind of learning about all the details of it and what you need to do in order to get off the street and really the valuable service that people like Stephanie offer. What's your name and what do you do? Uh, hi, I'm Stephanie Somar. I am the clinical supervisor for the CUCS, the Center for Urban Community Services, a homeless outreach team, street outreach team. You're the clinical supervisor for the street outreach team Correct. at the Center for Community Sur Urban Community Services. Yes, Center for Urban Community Services. Okay, let's let, long name. Let, let's take that one piece at a time. Right. First off, what is the Center for Urban Community Services? We are basically an organization that has um, many programs, many supportive housing sites, transitional facilities, the homeless outreach team, yeah. um, and many other programs. Basically, our job is to 
our goal is to eradicate homelessness and hopefully get everyone inside, get everyone connected to services. Okay. So, and you're a clinical supervisor on the outreach team. So what is the outreach team? So the homeless outreach team, our role is to canvas or drive out in cars in the upper Manhattan area, basically outreaching homeless individuals offering services, whether that means housing services or just like providing them with referrals to drop-in centers, shelters, food pantries, soup kitchens. In a nutshell, our job is to just offer services to street homeless individuals. Okay, so you're going out there, you're finding people, and you're saying, we can help you get housing. Pretty much. And That's exactly what we say. And to, to be clear, your nonprofit, you guys are you working sort of independently or are you working for the city? How is that relationship? So work? we do have a contract with the Department of Homeless Services. Back in 2014, the mayor decided to further fund, to provide additional funding to the homeless outreach team so that we are out there 24-7 offering clients the ability to either go inside into safe havens or shelters. Our team has grown significantly since 2014. Were you there in 2014? I actually started in 2014. Okay, so like the mayor... So I started at the start of the contract when the mayor decided to expand the homeless outreach services. So this is interesting to me. So New York has contracts, nonprofits like, like yours. Right. Where they essentially pay you guys to go out and reach out to the homeless. Correct. Offer them services. Correct. And I guess try to help them get on their feet. And and this has been something that I, I guess they've been pumping more money into for the last half decade. Yes. Is this unique to New York or do other cities do something similar? I understand that the state of California has a homeless outreach like issue crisis going on, and they are trying to implement some strategies that we have been implementing here in New York City. So they're trying to borrow from you guys Absolutely. A bit. Borrow some ideas, some tips and tricks to see how they can engage with homeless individuals. But it seems like—so California is trying to, but this it's, it's somewhat unique to New yeah. York then. Yeah. So, so we've got your organization down. We now know kind of what homeless outreach is. And right. clinical supervisor— what does that mean? So my team has a program director, an assistant program director, and two clinical supervisors. So each clinical supervisor has a team of like three or four case managers. So our job is basically to help our team manage their caseloads. Okay. We do have client caseloads, and our clients, what we do is help place them into housing or place them into shelter. So I help my team manage that and also help the team with managing what sites to canvas in the upper Manhattan area to ensure that we are canvassing our catchment area all on a regular of, basis. All of upper Manhattan? Yeah. What's upper Manhattan? For? So for us, it's 110th Street all the way up to, to Inwood. All the way up until, to? Yep. Okay, to so that's the entire— top of Manhattan. That's like from, for people who, who don't know New York geography is, is like kind of the top of Central Park— on the Pretty map much, to yes. the tip of the island. Correct. And you're helping oversee the team of people who, who make contact and kind of help find the, the homeless in that entire area. Yes. And how many people are on your team that you're overseeing again? My team has, I oversee about three case managers. And, and do you have cases as well? Like, Do you have individuals that you work you, like? Uh, I don't have a caseload, but yeah. my caseload is essentially my case manager's caseload. So okay. if each, each case manager has about... 25-ish clients. So you got like 75 clients at a given time that right. you're trying to kind of make contact with and right. help. 
And that's just for my team. In total, we have about 10 case managers. In total, you, you guys probably have, what, 250 clients, you'd put it? Something around like 200, right? 200, 250. And we're still adding. These are the homeless folks in upper Manhattan that you guys are going to make contact with every day or how's that? It depends on the client. Some clients we do try to see every day. Yeah. And other clients we do try to see uh, maybe several times a week, maybe once a month. We do try to see them more than once a month, to be very honest with you. Um, But just there are some clients that are pretty difficult to locate. So once a month tends to work for them. So. Are you a social worker or are you a... I am a social worker. I'm what? a licensed clinical social worker. And how, how long have you been a social worker for? I have been a social worker since 2014. So that's when you joined this. I actually, sorry, I actually started this in 2016. I actually started with the outreach in 2016. Okay. But started with the agency back in 2014, but I worked in supportive housing. Working at the homeless, what, you've kind of done your whole career then? Pretty much for my whole social work career. Yeah, what made you... Either people that were uh, currently homeless or formerly homeless. How did you decide to start working with the homeless? What made you go into that line of work? I actually started at CUCS as an intern. When I went to social work school, I was asked to do an internship with the Center for Urban Community Services. I was placed in the housing um, program, and I loved working with clients there, working with them in order to help them achieve their goals. And I just sort of, I just stuck with it. I love the agency. I love the culture of the agency. I love the clients there. And I'm I'm still there. I enjoy working there. It seems like you were saying there, there are kind of two parts to your role, Correct. your guys' role. There's totally. actually making contact with people, yes, finding them, and then helping them into housing. Yes. So let, let, let's start with part one, okay, which is finding, finding people. <laughs> yeah. What are are you out there doing rounds? How does this work? So our team has an early morning team. Mm-hmm. Their shift is five thirty to one thirty. From about five thirty or so up until eight ish, their role is to go out and canvas. They go out in vehicles. We have about four case managers, two case managers per car. So we have two cars driving around upper Manhattan, locating street homeless clients and offering services. You're just driving around. We're just driving around. You're on the beat. Right. When you started off at CUCS, were you one of the, I guess, the beat cops? That's the wrong way to one of the beat social workers? When I started with outreach, I was actually, my job was responding to a lot of 311 calls, community calls. Oh, interesting. Which is, so what that is, is any community member could yeah. call 311 yeah. or they can do it through the 311 app and they can report a homeless person. So once the homeless outreach team gets that notification from 311 saying that there's a homeless individual on 125th Street and 12th Ave, for instance, our job is to go out there within the hour engage with that individual and offer them services. Wait, so why are people usually reporting a homeless person in New York? What leads to those calls? Well, sometimes what leads to those calls is that we actually have, there are a lot of community members that actually do want those individuals to be inside in housing and are helping us yeah. connect with those individuals. So we certainly appreciate that. It sounds like sometimes it's just like an angry neighbor. Sometimes it's just, it's a complaint. So when someone calls 311, you guys end up on the line and they send a social worker. They send, it could be any team member. Okay. Any team member can go out and just engage with the individual and yeah. offer services. Uh, interesting. So that was what you were doing initially. Yeah. 
did you ever do like the morning rounds or is that something? I've done I've done the morning rounds. Okay. Uh, everyone on our team has done the morning rounds. Okay. So the, um, so the morning rounds is like that's the daily thing though. That's That the, is the daily thing. And while they're doing their morning rounds, they are also responding to 311 calls to these community calls because community calls come 24 hours a day. You're driving around looking for people on the street. Yes. How do you decide where you're going to go looking? So we decide by actually 311 calls help us a lot because yeah. that helps us find out where homeless individuals are staying. So we definitely appreciate the yeah. community members helping us out. But also we get help from the Department of Homeless Services. They inform us where there are hot spots or homeless encampments for us to keep an eye on, for us to canvas for. Also, we have a giant map in our office with neighborhoods to mm-hmm. focus on or neighborhoods that we should canvas every so often, every couple of weeks. How, how, do you, how do you pick a neighborhood? The way we do that is we try to canvas every neighborhood about once a week or so, mm-hmm. sometimes even more. So we just try to keep rotating those neighborhoods so that we can remember to, we try not to leave any neighborhood out. I think it's definitely helpful for us to have this giant map in our office to help us remember where we need to canvas we plan with the team, actually, every Friday's in team meeting of spots that we need to remember to canvas, spots that we need to certainly keep an eye on. And wh- what is a hot spot? A hot spot is where more than one homeless individual hangs out or congregates. That would be considered a hot, a hot spot. spot. Are there like regular hot spots? Kind of. Some can be regular hot spots. Yeah. And other times, maybe depending on the season, it just dies down and it's not a hot spot anymore for the season. But you're keeping track of those as yes. well. And are those up on the map? They are up on the map, but they're also just known to the team as like hot spots. Like it's known to the team that that's a spot that we should definitely keep an eye on. What kind of places turn into hot spots usually? Is there any kind of pattern with them? There's not really a pattern, but we find hot spots around train stations or maybe close to a park entrance. Yeah. Um, but there's no, there's not really like a pattern. It could be anywhere. You mentioned encampments. My understanding is that New York has first off, less of a street homelessness problem than a lot of places like California mm-hmm. because we have we have a right to shelter here. And as a result, you know, what you get told a lot is that when, when you call people about this topic is that we don't really have tent cities or we don't really have encampments. Yeah. But I guess there, there are some. You're there saying. are some. Are they like tent cities or are they just like what, what, what do the encampments tend to look like in New York? Some encampments are tents. Other encampments, we found encampments that are actually like built with with like wood yeah like definitely like put together and made into like a, some sort of structure tarps just like our encampments when you say wood are you saying like it'll be like a one-off little kind of house or hut someone's made or it's like a little shanty town here or like a little like hut like yeah. sometimes in definitely in upper manhattan where it's heavily wooded we have we have seen clients like build like a little hut made out of like the wood that they find in the brush or in the in the park so we definitely see that um i've seen like a little like hut city. You've seen Hut City? I've seen a Hut City. Where, where did you find a Hut City in New York? I don't feel comfortable disclosing just because okay. I want to maintain yeah. the privacy of those clients. Yeah, but I want you sense. to, it, we do find a lot of encampments in like heavily wooded areas. Interesting. So in it's, Manhattan. So in New York, it, it's, it exists. It's just out of view. Is sort of, or compared to like California compared or, to or California. Colorado, where it's sort of really out in the open. Right. Huh. I wouldn't have realized that. This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. 
Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. So you're out looking for folks in the car, or I guess going into parks mm-hmm. or whatnot. I mean, when you see someone, how, how do you tell they're homeless as opposed to just like someone who's maybe just poor and hanging on the street? How do you know, like, I need to go talk to that person? We ask them. We yeah. do approach them and ask them um, if they're homeless and in need of services. We do identify ourselves. We say, you know, hey, so-and-so, we are a homeless outreach team. Are you in need of homeless services? Are you homeless? Do so you need our help? You look and you can, I mean, obviously there are times you can kind of just tell. Yeah. But, and but other times if we're uncertain, we just ask. Do you ever guess wrong? Do people ever get offended? We've had people get offended, but not many, to be very honest. They are appreciative of the fact that there is a team going out there offering services to the street homeless individual. You go up to them and ask, do you need services? What services are you actually offering? So what we actually offer is either drive over to shelter if they wish to go inside. We offer referrals to uh, soup kitchens, drop-in centers, places where they do free haircuts and provide free clothing. And then we certainly also inform the individual that we can help them obtain permanent housing. When you meet someone for the first time, mm-hmm. what's the reaction usually? But also, and how, do you, how do you say hi? I, so what I say is, hey, I'm Stephanie. I'm with the homeless, homeless outreach team. Are you in need of any services? That's, that, and then yeah. they'll usually say, well, what kind of services? Okay, so they grill, you, they grill you the way I'm grilling yeah. you right now. Okay, yeah, pretty so much. Pretty much. <laughs> similar. So would you say the reaction is usually curiosity? What, what is it? How do people respond? Depends on the individual. Yeah. Some clients won't even look at us at all and just completely ignore us. Mm-hmm. And so what we just do is we either leave a business card or a street sheet and we let them know that we're leaving that with them or close to their street spot. Like clo- maybe if they're sitting on a bench, we'll leave it like on the side. And we encourage them to seek us out, call us, come to the office. Um, and other clients, if they want to talk to us and ask us questions, they will do that. 
They will engage us in conversation and they will ask us questions. How often would you say folks are ready to gab and how often are they kind of giving you the brush off? I feel like most individuals are ready to talk or just at least ask questions. If they're not ready to accept services and work with us towards housing, that's okay. But I feel like most individuals are ready to talk. Yeah, they're interested at least. Are they actually interested in, in getting housing usually or are they are they interested in you know going to a shelter usually they're interested in getting housing okay and working with our team less so a shelter yes so actually for for listeners explain the difference between those two things i think that's actually probably an important step on what what is a shelter versus housing a shelter is an, a place where you go and seek just temporary, you just have a temporary roof over your head, and you may be placed in a facility that has a bunch of individuals in one room. Kind of a dorm type thing. Kind of a dorm style type of facility, right? Yeah. Whereas housing for us, it's permanent housing. It's your own room, apartment, SRO. So it's two completely different things. But in the meantime, since we automatically can't place someone into housing, what we can do is place someone into safe haven. And that's different from shelter. So there's there's shelters, there's safe havens, and then there's housing. Permanent housing, yeah, housing. I think it would actually probably be helpful to, and this is going to get into policy talk here, but Mm -hmm. I feel like that's important to understanding your job. So with a shelter, I understand there's there's like one big shelter. In New York downtown, right? Or there's like a or a few major ones. How how does that work exactly? So there's a men's intake shelter downtown. How many people are, are there usually? Or? Oh, I don't exactly know the number, but hundreds. Okay. Hundreds. Um, and then there's a women's intake shelter in the Bronx. Those are the, the main shelters the city runs. Right. So what happens is that an individual goes to one of those intake shelters and over time they eventually get placed into their assigned shelter, which is a smaller building, but it is it tends to be also like a dorm style type facility. Oh, okay. So I they see. move out of the intake assessment center into their own assigned shelter. And those are like the nonprofit ones and things like the city run and the nonprofit yeah. ones. I see. So you got the intake shelter. And then you got the smaller ones, and but people aren't necessarily interested in going to that. They're not necessarily interested in going to that, no. <laughs> How come? Well, from I've asked clients these questions, and from what they've told me is that they don't feel safe there. A lot of clients deal with mental illness, and they find that being in that sort of environment with hundreds of individuals is super triggering, um, yeah. super anxiety-provoking, so they'd rather not stay in in that sort of facility and that's they'd that, rather be out in the streets that that's why they're on the yeah. streets because again new york has in theory a, a right they if you present yourself at like the intake shelter they have to put you up somewhere right yeah so that's legally you're entitled to a roof over your head right but they won't because yeah, you, you hear like the shelters are dangerous that people get hurt i mean how is that is that a problem that you've got like people have been like attacked or things like that? That's what clients have told me. And most of the clients are are they men, women, single? So we work with adults, just the adult population. Yeah. I just want to make that clear. We mostly encounter men. There are women out there, yeah. but we mostly do encounter men out on the streets. So you're you're dealing with men who who don't want to be in the shelter system because yeah. they're they've got mental illness or they they think they're going to be attacked. Yeah. 
It, then you said there's a second category. There's safe havens. What, what's a safe haven? So a safe haven is only open to the street outreach team. So once a homeless individual connects with the street outreach team and decides that they want to go inside and they don't want to go to shelter, what we do is we offer them the option of going into safe haven, which is a, like a shelter. It's similar, but it's a way smaller building, a lot more case management on site. And these facilities tend to be, there are some that are dorm style, but these facilities tend to have either single rooms, which is which a lot of clients prefer to have, um, or their shared rooms. So you share with one other individual instead of having to be in this giant dorm-style facility, facility like the Bellevue Intake Shelter. If it feels like maybe dorm is even... Maybe I was being too generous there with the, the major. It sounds like almost like a, an old hospital ward or something. When you say just like, a, is it just really a giant open room or is it? I've actually been to, I haven't been inside of the Bellevue Intake Shelter. Okay. But the women's one up in the Bronx is just a big, uh, like a giant gymnasium. Big. Oh, wow. Gymnasium. And so, it's just an open. Yeah. So that I could see how that would feel really chaotic. Yeah. And so the safe haven is... For someone who who's been frightened away, it's a I guess a more appealing option, and so you tell them about that. I definitely tell them about that, and I tell them I explain to them the neighborhood that the safe haven is in and what the style of the facility is, whether it's a single room, a shared room, or a dorm style facility. How often would you say people are interested in that? Pretty often. That that sounds pretty, good. Pretty often. Yeah. yeah, safe haven sounds good. Yeah. So you've the shelters, you have the safe havens are meant to appeal to people who've been kind of burned or feel like they've been burned by yeah. the system. And then housing. And that's kind of your end goal. That is, getting is them, the end goal. What housing are you getting them into? How are you doing that? Where are you placing them? We are placing them into either supportive housing with mm-hmm. case management on site, or we are looking for independent housing. Housing with uh, the city there's a new voucher out that's called the City for Heps voucher. We can take that or clients could take that to brokers and we can just find any sort of apartment or room in the community that clients can rent out. You know, like a Section 8 voucher. It's pretty similar. I see. But it's specifically for people who've been homeless. Is that the idea or is it a little? This is for people that have like an active uh, public assistance case and are in shelter or homeless. And in the end, are, are you putting them in, like in regular apartment buildings? Or you said like Section Eight, so I imagine that that could just be like a, a normal like public housing or or normal private apartment. The way we place people into housing is by starting something called a housing packet. A housing packet consists of a birth certificate, IDs such as your benefit card or like a state ID. Um, a social security card, a psych eval, a psychosocial. Eventually, once we get all of those important documents, oh, and income is a big one because you need an income in order to pay rent. So once you have all of those things, we put it together. We send it off to the Human Resources Administration. And there's a department in the Human Resources Administration that reviews this packet and comes back to us with a determination so what this determination, it's called a determination letter. And what this is called, what, what this determination letter states um, is what sort of housing the client would benefit from um, living in. I see. So there are, there are a few different options. Yeah. Which is, like you said, anything from supportive housing, which uh, supportive housing is what also? So supportive housing has case management on site. This, Does that mean a social worker is around or is it? A social worker, case manager, they help clients follow up with psych appointments, maybe assist them with taking their medications. 
Some clients would benefit from being what's called a representative payee. If they receive any Social Security income from Social Security, what the housing could do, what the supportive housing site could do is help the client pay their rent and then help them budget, like manage their money throughout the month so that they're not out of money. Is it sort of like an institutional thing? No, it's not at all. Oh, okay. Not at all. Is it like an apartment and then there's It's an apartment with just like case management in the building, like an office, maybe like on the first floor or on the top floor, somewhere in the building, there's an office with a social service department on site. Uh, I got it. So that's like one option that they someone might be able to qualify for, but then they've also, they might just qualify for a voucher in a normal apartment. Right. Is another. another. Right. And you're talking about this housing packet and you were list. I, I was trying to write down as you went, you're like psych evaluation yeah. and social evaluation yeah. and all their paperwork they have to have an income, which yeah. seems like it's tricky if you're living on the street. You Do you kind of oversee putting that whole thing together? I, I definitely oversee putting that whole thing together. So what the case manager does is assists the client in obtaining all of those documents. And okay. I'm overseeing that entire process. Each part of it. Every Yeah, each component of the housing packet. I, I certainly oversee that. Including the getting a job part? If the client wishes to get a job... What we can do is certainly, like, assist them with referring them to the appropriate agency or— Well, I guess because you said income, so I guess— Oh, so what I mean by that is either if they want to get a job, we certainly help them either apply or maybe refer them to an agency that can help them do a work program. But we also help them apply for public assistance. So a client—if a client is unable to work or just can't work for some reason, we can get them public assistance in the meantime so they can have— cash assistance and they can have some food stamps. Medicaid or... Right. Yeah. How long does it take ordinarily to put together this packet? Sometimes it could be a couple of weeks, a month, or sometimes it could be a long time, like like a year. A year. Yeah. It really depends on the client. We move at the client's pace. We don't try to rush the client. We really do try to meet them where they're at. Obtaining all of those documents can be pretty overwhelming. Yeah. Do you get people into housing, for, like temporary housing, a safe haven first, and then start this process? Or do you start this process with people who are still on the street? Both. Both. They can be on the street, and we could start this process while they're on the street. They would rather stay on the street and put together a packet, the process it's for ha- yeah. permanent housing, yeah. rather than go back to a shelter or yes. a safe haven. Yes. That, that strikes me as kind of strange, because they, they want to get housing. Presumably, they want a roof over their head. A lot of clients don't—what they tell me is that they don't want to go into a place that's like a shelter. They just want to move directly into housing. They don't want to go inside. They don't want to go inside unless it's their own roof. They're that frightened of the concept of a shelter. Yeah. So that's like a really deep— sounding fear. Yeah. So you're you're you and your caseworkers are holding their hand through all of this. Yes. And that can take a month or a year. Are they coming in for appointments while you do this or are you just going out every day and looking for I mean how how do how do you like you said it's it's a a client relationship. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you manage that? Well, we definitely meet with clients on the street like if they prefer to meet on the street, mm-hmm. we definitely can make that work. So if they want to do the psychosocial on the street or fill out paperwork on the street, we certainly do that. If they want to come into the office, we offer that as well. We can drive them back to the office and, you know, sit in a private room and just, like, complete the paperwork that's needed to be completed. But it's up to the client. So It's up to the client. So when you're making, like, when you're scheduling a time to meet, is it, like, 3 o'clock Friday at my corner? Is that kind of... 
that's a thing. That's something we do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's come to the park. Yeah. I'll be there. Yeah. Exactly. How often do they like show up and make the appointment? Sometimes they don't, and that's okay. We try again. (laughs) That's totally fine. It sounds like there's some you need some flexibility in this line of work. And sometimes that's why it takes so long to get a housing packet together. Yeah. How many of your clients have like phones? I don't know a number off like a. Do they? I can't even guess like roughly like how many clients, but we do have clients. Some clients do have phones. So some have phones. So you can others don't. You can get in touch with them that way. Yeah. So if someone doesn't have a phone, how do you get in touch? Go find them at their street spot. (sighs) Try to ask their friends if they've seen them. Some clients do go to other community organizations for services. So we might go to that case manager and you know ask them, hey, have you seen so and so? If you have. Let them know that the outreach team is looking for them. Yeah. So they're, they've been, other organizations have been super helpful at helping us connect with clients. Do, do clients just kind of disappear sometimes or? They do. It's happened. How's that feel? You you kind of, when, when I asked that, you, you, there was a look that was like, it's not fun. <laughs> it's it's not kind of that fun look. because then you're just, we're just left wondering like, man, like I hope they're okay. Like yeah. where are they? Yeah. And we do, we actually, when clients do go missing, we do what's called a diligent search. Okay. So we call hospitals. We check the the criminal justice system. We can You can check online to see if anybody has been incarcerated. So we look at that. But if we don't find them, yeah. then we just hope, we kind of just have to hope that they turn back up. Yeah. You find them on the rounds. How long is it before you start looking for someone? Like how long does it have to be since you last saw them? Sometimes we give it like, Three weeks, three to four weeks. If someone hasn't turned up after a month, that's yeah. usually a sign that something's gone awry. Yeah. Raise your hand if you are burnt out. If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine. You are not alone. I'm Shirley Leung, host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbet, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say more from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Your day, what does it mostly consist of? What are you actually spending your time on? I am spending my time on trying to get housing packets out for clients, yeah. trying to get clients matched to permanent housing, trying to get clients into safe haven if that's what they want. So you're just on the phone kind of dealing with these bureaucratic issues all day. It's basically just a bunch of emails and making sure that I'm on top of my emails yeah. so that I can, if there are any vacancies for any permanent housing, I am on it. I'm trying to get this client in or same for safe haven. If there's a vacancy at a certain safe haven that a client wants to go to, I'm, I'm on it. 
yeah. trying to get that bed for them. So you're sort of the advocate yeah. at that point. You're the one trying to help them off the street, and you're, you're their voice in the system. Our whole team is. You're, you and your whole team. Right. What are the problems that typically come up when you're trying to put together a housing packet, aside from people vanishing or uh, <laughs> or you not showing up at, at the park at 3 p.m. on Friday? Sometimes you need IDs in order to order IDs. Which is tricky because if a client doesn't, if they've lost all of their IDs, it's hard to order new IDs because you need to have a form of ID to order a new ID. You're in a catch-22. What do you do in that situation? So what we do in that situation is that we write a letter. We can sometimes write a letter and provide like our CUCS, like homeless outreach ID, confirming that the client is street homeless, has lost all of their IDs, and we need a state ID or we need some sort of like any sort of identification to be ordered for housing purposes. So you, you have to kind of say, hi, this isn't a scam. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're, we're the yeah, like I'm vouching for this client. This individual truly a street homeless does not have any IDs. I can confirm that. You're collecting all this paperwork. Are you holding on to it or are they holding on to it? So each client has a chart that we have locked up in a filing cabinet. So we hold on to the paperwork. But for IDs, if a client wants to keep that in their pocket, we certainly give it to them so that they can have their IDs on them. That's totally fine. A lot of clients actually ask us to keep their original IDs safely. Because they know that. Right. They know that, you know, it might get lost or something. If they get robbed. Yeah. Something along those lines. Um, And how, I mean, and, and you mentioned like, psych and social evaluations i mean who's who's people are coming in to are like who who what what is that so a psychosocial is usually done by the case manager or social worker and it's just sitting down with the client to basically get the client's history their whole yeah. like life history maybe like psych information from them if they've ever been diagnosed with a mental illness um we get medical information from them substance history so that's just one big Report, I guess you can say. And that's to help determine whether they need to go into something like you said, supportive, right. or they can kind of live on their own, right. whether they can manage it. And then the psych eval is when the psychiatrist sits down, um, also meets with them, also sort of gets like a social history on them, yeah. and then determines whether or not this individual has a mental illness or or has a, a substance history. When a client has a severe mental illness, mm-hmm. how, how does that affect your job? In cases of severe mental illness, what we try to focus on is getting the client stable enough mm-hmm. with the help of the on-site psychiatrist and the street medical team so that eventually we can get this housing packet together. Yeah. But we certainly focus on stability. You're you're going out and finding people during the daily rounds who are sometimes kind of isolated, right? I mean, like, there are times where you're probably the only one they, person they're talking to in yeah. the course of, right? What do folks want to talk about? What do you chat about? We don't always chat about housing. We talk about their hobbies. They talk yeah. about like what they want to do um, or what their goals are for the future or what the rest of the week is going to look like. Just very normal things, things you want to talk about with your friends. Yeah, people just like kind of want to shoot the shit, right? Yeah. Do you ever like really feel like you get to know someone? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, this is it's it's a pretty long process to get someone housed. And yeah. you know, there are we have a lot of engagements in between getting that housing packet together. So there's a lot of time to get to really know someone. Do you ever kind of keep in touch with people after they've gone through the process and been housed? 
Not really. Yeah. After someone's been housed, we discharge them after three months. We prepare them for the termination process. Um, But clients can certainly come. There are some clients that do come back to our office, and they want to say hi, and they want to check in with us, and they want to let us know how they're doing, and we Mm -hmm. love that. What kind of problems do your clients usually ask for help with aside from getting housing? A lot of it is getting help with having their basic needs met. It's either like asking where they can get clothing, asking us where they can get food. Sometimes we do buy them food so that they sometimes come to us and be like, hey, can you just buy me a sandwich or can you make me a coffee? Clients do come to our office and we do make them coffee or hot chocolate. So they'll come in for little things like that. They'll ask us for like help with the toiletries and we have a toiletry kit that we give them. Socks and clothing is something that we that's a big thing for our clients. Socks. Yeah. Why socks? We actually get every year, we get a donation of about, I want to say like 500 socks. Oh, really? So it's something, yeah. Yeah. It's something that we have in our office, we have in all of our cars. Our clients know that we have these socks. And it's important for them to just, uh, they want to have just some sort of like clean article of clothing on them. It's It helps them during the wintertime to prevent frostbite on their hands and feet. A lot of clients use the socks as gloves. Okay. Um, And it's certainly helpful for them in the summer to prevent just, you know, moisture collecting like in their their shoes or in their old socks. So are you like always carrying a bunch of socks in your car when you're out on rounds? Yeah. It's just like a box of socks? It's just a whole bag of socks. So you bring socks. Is there anything else you kind of carry with you? We always carry what's called a street sheet, which is just a listing of like food pantries and soup kitchens and haircuts and other places to get clothing and the addresses of the uh, intake shelters yeah. are on there and the drop-in centers. And that's what you hand So that's people. what we hand out. We keep the business cards in our car. Sometimes we try to keep clothing in our car, but not often. It's hard to have clothing for different. There's Everyone's just a different size and different body type. It's just very hard to keep clothing. Yeah. If you meet someone for the first time and, and they say, Fuck off, yeah, you know, or or they they don't want to yeah. respond, or it you know, yeah, right. It, okay, it does happen. It happens. Um, do you come back? Yeah. What do you do the second time? Just uh, hey, so and so, just come to say hi. Just checking up on you, making sure you're okay. And they might tell me to fuck off again, but I <laughs> let them know that I'm coming back for them. We're gonna try to win them over. It's happened. We've won over clients. What's the most times you had to like keep coming back before they kind of crack? It's hard to say. I mean, with some clients, it could be like the 100th engagement, 300th engagement. Really? It can yeah. take that long, yeah. that many times yeah. for them to say, okay, I'll talk to you? Yeah. The, yeah. the 100th engagement. Yeah. And Every that, client is different. I guess by that point, you kind of at least know where to find them. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Is there any concern ever about safety? I mean, I, I almost hate asking that question because I'm— Talking about the homeless, like they're you know, mm-hmm. like they're all violent or crazy. Like yeah, that's not what I mean. Not, but like right. there are there, there's obviously some who have severe mental mental health problems. I mean, is safety ever a, a concern on on your guys' end? I mean, we always go out in pairs, and we certainly keep an appropriate distance away from the client. Just mm-hmm. we also want to respect their space. We don't want to be up in their face, especially if they're sleeping and bedded down. Sometimes we do—I just don't want to frighten anybody. So we definitely do try to keep our distance. But safety is a concern. Again, not every client is violent. That actually rarely happens where we, um, where we encounter someone who's violent towards us. But we certainly go out in pairs when we're canvassing inside parks or heavily wooded areas. Yeah, because that's something that could be yeah. 
dangerous. Yeah. It's secluded. That's exactly why, because it's so secluded. You said you kind of shoot the shit with your clients. What are the biggest challenges they they face living on the street? What do you hear from them? Like, I mean, to me, just living on the street sounds kind of horrible generally, but I'm, I'm curious what you've learned talking to them. The weather is a big one. Yeah. When it's super cold out. Yeah. Or if it's super hot out, that is a pretty big challenge for them. Just finding a place where they feel comfortable temperature-wise um, and they don't have to worry. They don't have to worry about any sort of, like in the wintertime, like freezing to death. Like they don't have to worry about that. So you've got people who are worrying about freezing to death, but at the same time, they still don't want to go to a shelter. So what we offer in the wintertime, we push clients to consider going into a church bed during the overnight hours so that they are somewhere warm um, and they are in a place that they can take a shower and have a meal. That's another option, especially in the wintertime. There's kind of a lot of, it sounds like problem solving to some extent. Yeah. You're figuring out how to keep this person safe. Right. And then we also give them like a lot of jackets and maybe if we have blankets, we'll give them blankets. So if they do decide to stay on the street... They can at least have, like, layers of clothing to try to keep warm. This is going to sound so morbid, but have, have has one of your clients ever died while they were out on the street? Not from the cold. Not from the cold? Yeah. From other things? Like or drug overdose. Drug overdoses. Yeah. That's a... That's a big one. I, and that's, I guess, part of your job is probably trying to get help them to get treatment, right? That's if they want it. We don't push it. That's something we certainly offer. We do give clients, you know, depending on the drug that they use... Um, we do give client like Narcan kits so that they have that. Sometimes if we have on hand the fentanyl testing strips, we give them that just so that maybe, you know, they can use safely. We try to encourage that and educate them to use safely. Or we try to point them in the direction where they can get clean needles. Just harm reduction is a big part of our job. You said earlier on that you responded to 311 calls mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. Does that ever require dealing with the caller, with dealing with the neighbors? Not really. Yeah. The thing is, is that the caller or the neighbors, they're never there okay. when they put in these 311 calls. So when we pull up in our car, we just really, we only see the homeless individual. We don't yeah. see the caller. When you first meet clients, how often do they have any idea what options are like available to them? The fact that they, they could get housing or, or they, they could get into a safe haven. Actually, the majority of clients, almost all clients, aren't aware that safe havens even exist. There's limited understanding of that. Yeah. How about like that housing is something that they could theoretically qualify for? I don't think they realize that there are different types of housing, that there's supportive housing, that they can find independent housing, that there's the option to get housed. There's an option for them to get something called the City Faheps housing voucher. There's a lot of educating on our part. When it comes to navigating, like, the housing process with them. I ask because I'm trying to picture what a homeless person would even do, like, how they would even begin trying to navigate all these different systems if someone like you didn't exist. Like, if you're terrified of a shelter yeah. and you don't, you don't want to go back to one and you don't really know how the system works, like, what the hell would that person do? I mean, I, if I were in their shoes, I'd probably stay on the street, I wouldn't know who to turn to. Yeah. Like, I'm, after just talking to you about all the different aspects of your job, that this That's is what, a very good question. <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm kind of thinking about, like, what people in, you know, California, I guess yeah. now, or, or Colorado, or somewhere that didn't have a service like this, didn't have someone kind of doing outreach, like, what the system would even look like to them? Like, how would you, yeah, it seems, it's kind of unimaginable to me. I mean, I, I honestly wouldn't know where to start. I, yeah. I, 
if I were homeless in New York, maybe I'd start by going to the Human Resources Administration. Yeah. Like I'd start going, you know, to the to the welfare office and ask questions there. And, and just and I would sort of hope that someone would point me in the right direction or to the right agency that could help me get permanent housing. I mean, your job is to deal with the bureaucracy. Yeah, a lot of it. A lot of it. And that's that's tricky, right? I mean, like I was trying to call like housing preservation recently for something and like that is like a random upper middle class white guy was you know, with time on my hands was almost impossible <laughs> to, like, get deal with. I mean, like, you're you're smiling, but, like, New York bureaucracy is not, not easy, right? right. Like, there got to be times you want to, like, tear your hair out dealing with it. Most of the time. <laughs> Most of the time. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's, it yeah. is frustrating yeah. trying to navigate all these different systems. I mean, like, how often do you, like, spend an afternoon like, just trying to get someone on the phone, like, trying to pick up their phone? Like, that, that's a thing. Just, that's like, tough. People who work in city government don't necessarily, like, respond to their messages. Like, right. I'm, do you find that? Or, sorry, I'm, like, ranting and raving. <laughs> no, right I now. mean, I've definitely yeah. found that, yeah. you know, when I try to call other uh, organizations or agencies, like, it's hard to get someone on the phone. But when I finally do, I try to get the name of that contact person, the number, ask them when's the best time to reach them, just sort of, sort of make that connection with them yeah. so that I know like, if the next time I need to reach someone from that agency or from that organization, I know who to ask for. Part of your job then is like kind of networking and yeah. like having, knowing who to call yeah. and which string to pull, essentially. Right. right. Is that something that's taken a while to learn? It's definitely taken a while to learn. And it definitely our team is very good at networking and trying to find like who's the right person to reach out to for these different organizations. And we try to share that information with one another. Have you ever had a client who you got into housing and then you ended up back on the street? Yes. What do you do then? Get them right back into housing. We start with the housing packet. Just start. We start from scratch. Start from scratch. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for coming in and talking about all of this. Thank you so much. This was fun. That's it for this week's episode of Working. I hope you enjoyed the show. As usual, if you did, please leave us a uh, review at Apple Podcasts. And if you have questions, comments, uh, please, 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 please send me an email at working at slate.com. There was a little editing glitch when we released last week's episode, which, by the way, I apologize for. Our bad. Very sorry. We try to give you the best product possible each week. And the reason we caught it was because someone wrote to us, sent us an email, told us, hey, you messed something up, and we rushed to fix it. So we love feedback. We love hearing when we've messed something up. We will repair it. We'll do better next time. Um, either way, uh, the producer I'm working, as always, is Jessamyn Molly. A special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. And please join us again next week. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.